We're going to jump right in. We've been working our way this fall through the Apostles' Creed, the oldest, the most ancient of, of Christian statements of faith, trying to discern and define truth in a world that just seems incrementally full of lies. And so we're going to jump in by reciting it. This is the second to last week. Uh, hopefully it's starting to get embedded a little bit in you. Um, but not. this is not about learning to say it by rote. It's about understanding it. Like I've said from the beginning, we're trying to, to know what it is that we say we believe. So let me ask you to join me. You're going to put the creed up on the screen behind me, and we're going to read it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Grab a seat. And if any of that seemed super confusing to you, I know there's a couple of ones in there that if you haven't been with us, you're like, what the heck does that mean? I'd encourage you to go back and check out. We've almost gone through this now line by line. Today, we're looking at um, the relationship a little bit between the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins. You just said, we just said, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. There's an old joke that goes something like this. When I was a kid, I used to pray for a bike. Like every day, daily, I would pray for a bike. But when I grew up, I realized that God didn't work that way. So I stole a bike and asked for forgiveness. Which is kind of funny, um, but uh, there's a little bit of truth in it, in the way that all of us kind of come to God, right? Today, in the Apostles' Creed, we make yet another turn, right? It introduces, the Creed introduces for the first time, something about humanity. Think about it. Up to this point, right, the Creed has declared the existence and the work of the triune God, the life, death, resurrection, and eternality of Jesus, his reign and his rule. It spoke of the promise of a future judgment. We talked about that. The establishment and purpose of the church. Now the Creed turns to the character of mankind. It turns to you and I. Humanity finally shows up. And how do we show up? As sinners. The creed, having spoken about this coming judgment, now it, affirm, it affirms the grand problem. There's a coming judgment for sinners, of which we all are one. Think about it. We've been reciting it week after week, right? How quickly and without reverence do we go, go by those four words, right? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We just go right by it. Forgiveness of sins. Not in the earning of one's salvation, not in the merit of all of my good works, but you just said it. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We go right by it. I like how theologian Albert Moeller described just these four words. Here's what he said. Contained in the affirmation the forgiveness of sins is nothing less than the heartbeat of all of our hopes as believers. Without the forgiveness of sins, there is no gospel. There is no hope for the people of God. In fact, there will be no people of God. Forgive, forgive us of our sins is the most cherished and urgent plea found in the Lord's Prayer. 
the one that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But in order to understand this, it's important, in order to understand this heartfelt plea, you've got to understand the reality of sin. Means the, meaning the sinfulness of the entire human race. But it also means the reality of our own horrible sin. When we confess we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're affirming an entire theology from creation to the fall, right to God's work of redemption, to Christ's eternal kingdom. The entire Christian faith, and this is not an understatement, the entire Christian faith rests on the four words that you just ran by, the forgiveness of sin. Courtney is the director of children's ministry upstairs, and she was sharing with me this story that she had been giving the kids this long lesson in their, in their group about um, sin and prayer and forgiveness. And when she finished the lesson, she was trying to see if the kids had understood what she had, she had been teaching them. She, she wondered if they had paid any attention. So, you know, the group was kind of gathered around, and she stood up, and she said, okay, kids, so now I want you to, together to tell me, what do we have to do before we ask the Lord for forgiveness? And all the kids shouted back in one accord, sin! <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> See, they probably didn't get it right. And you and I don't a lot either, right? I mean... Think about it. We, we've been saying and professing that we believe in the forgiveness of sins every week now. But how many other times during this entire series, I think I just spat, how many times other than this entire series have you gone about your daily lives and said, oh, I sinned again? Or in your relationship with your spouse, honey, I'm, I'm sorry, forgive me, I, I, I've sinned against you. I mean, I don't know about you, but I never use that word. Do you ever use that word outside of church? Because here's what I know about me, right? I, I have shortcomings. I have some issues, right? But I, I mean, I don't sin. I, I, I screw up sometimes. I mess up. Some of you will put a more colorful word in there sometimes, right? It's always interesting to me, too, that we never, we never screw down or mess down. We always screw up or mess up. It's as if we have some kind of understanding about who we're offending. The offense is always up. I mean, I, I'm, I'm like you, right? I mean, for the most part, I, I have some miscues. I have some mistakes. They're just shortcomings, really. At least if you listen to what I say, which often is what I'm speaking out of my heart. See, I'm not a bad guy who does bad things. I'm a good guy who now and then screws up, right? I heard a preacher, and the answer is wrong. I, I heard a preacher one time put it this way. He said, since I characterize my screw-ups as mistakes, my issue is that I'm a mistaker. Here's the thing about mistakes. See, mistakers, they just need to try harder, right? I mean, if you're just a mistaker, then all you have to do is better, do better. Mistakers just need to break a nasty habit. They, they just, I'm, I'm, I'm a mistaker. I just need to be more consistent in being good. Joan, how mad can you get? Honey, it was just a mistake. Mistakers just, I mean, if I know better, I'll do better, right? It was just a misunderstanding. But that's not what the creed affirms. And that's not what Jesus taught over and over and over again. We don't have a mistake problem. It's not that we screw things up sometimes. Jesus said your problem is much, much deeper. It's not that we're good people who sometimes do a few bad things. 
Jesus indicates over and over and over again, it's not that we have an issue with what's on the outside, as if somehow we, we could get ourselves cleaned up. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. And then, right, then it'll all be okay. Jesus is going, he keeps trying to teach us there's, there's something wrong on the inside. We have a heart issue. Now, we talked about this two weeks ago, right? Remember, in Jesus' longest single teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, he keeps trying to get this point across. Here's what he told people who, like us, thought they were simply mistakers. They screw up sometimes. Here's what he said. He goes, well, for all of you that think you're mistakers, that's actually what I said, but here's what he said. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they are professional law keepers. Their job is to keep the commands. In fact, they would add law upon law just to make sure you never got close to the original command, right? That's what they did. Their outward appearance was spotless. You would never, you and I would never go to the, the, the Pharisees and the law keepers and go, you hypocrites, because we'd look at them and go, man, they've got it nailed down. Look, these guys never break any of the commandments. Well, Jesus goes up to these people and he goes, well, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I mean, as I say a lot, enter the story, right? You're just there on the mount with Jesus and you're listening to some teaching and, geez, that seems kind of harsh, Jesus. I got a job and kids and a mortgage and you're telling me you want me to be more perfect, better than the guys who make a living being perfect? That's their job, right? You want me to be better than them? And Jesus' answer, I think if they asked them directly, so you want me to be better than them to enter the kingdom of heaven? I have to be better than that? I think Jesus would go, no, 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 no. You're not, you're not getting it. You're misunderstanding me. And if I was there, I'd be like, oh, thank, well, thank you. Thank God. Until he would go, oh, no, 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 it's actually much worse than that. For example, he would go on. We saw it two weeks ago. You have heard it said that uh, long ago you shall not murder, and anybody who murders will be subject to judgment. But I'm telling you, anybody who's angry with their brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then he just keeps raising the bar in this talk. He says the same thing in regards to adultery and love for enemies. He keeps saying, you guys think that your issue is that you screw up sometimes and that if you just try harder, you'll be okay with God and God will be okay with you. But he keeps going, you're not getting it. Your issue, it's deeper than that. In fact, at one point, here's what he says to the Pharisees and the keepers of the law. Again, again these are the professional law keepers. These are the good guys. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. Hypocrites? What do you mean, Jesus? We keep all the laws. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. What do you mean, Jesus? We, we do all the things that you told us to do. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of, of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And here's how he concludes, right? And remember, this is being said to professional good people. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Nobody stitches this on pillows. Right? See, 
the creed affirms what Jesus confirms. I don't have a mistake problem. I have a sin problem. It's on the inside. Have you ever felt it? You know, you start to realize, I mean, the longer I follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit, he has this way of just showing me over and over that I have a problem. I remember, I've shared this story one or two other times, but it's so embarrassing, but I'm going to share it anyway because what the heck, I just spit before, so I might as well share this one. I, when my kids were little, I would go, you know, they were both, um, they both played baseball and they were both okay, you know, they were good. And, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever had a kid in sports and especially a team sport and, you know, the, the team would be up and there'd be like, the bases are loaded and my kid would be up and I'd be like, you know, we'd be down like a run in the sixth inning, which is the last inning and here comes, you know, little Johnny and I'm in the stands going, oh dear God, no, <laughs> not my kid right? And inevitably, don't tell him when you see him later, little Johnny on his best day would ground out, right? More than likely strike out. This is when I realized I had a yuck factor because I'd be sitting next to the parent of the kid who came up next. Now there's two outs, right? There was one out when little John grounded out. And now here comes her son. And I look over and I'm like, oh, I know little Timmy's going to come through. Come on, Timmy! Inside, I'm going, please strike out. Please strike out. Why? Because it'll make my kid look better if your kid strikes out too. I think somebody just hissed me. <laughs> but see, we all have this, right? Well, don't, don't, maybe we don't. Maybe it's just me, but. <laughs> but, you know, like, you're at work, right? And, Jim gets the promotion in the cube next door. Oh, Jim, uh, it's about time they finally recognized you. I hate you, right? Your, your, your best friend in high school gets into your dream school and you don't. I'm so happy for you. No, you're not. You're not, right? I mean, we could go over and over the, these examples. It just, it's just, there's something inside that's not right. You see, if it's just that I mess up and I screw up, then all I need to do is do better. But if I'm a sinner, that seems to indicate there's something more fundamentally wrong with who I am. If I'm a sinner, then simply trying harder to get it done because it's not going to work. If I've sinned against the Almighty, the divine, it seems like I probably owe him something. It seems like if I'm a sinner, trying harder isn't going to help. If I'm a sinner... I'm going to need a Savior. And see, that's what's amazing about the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, is that it's, it's the law keepers, the professional good people, the ones who thought they were getting it right, who thought that they didn't have a sin issue, that they got it. They kept Jesus at a distance. He offended them. What are you talking about? Look at all my good works. Now, here's, here's the key. It's the sinner's it's the ones who knew they had a problem. The ones who understood that they hadn't just screwed up a little or messed up a tiny bit. It was, and you know their stories, right? The tax collectors, the prostitutes, all the men and women condemned by society. They're the ones that are flocking to Jesus. This is the key. This is the most fundamental thing I'm probably going to teach you in the whole series. I would actually argue if you're going to get nothing out of the entire creed, get this. It's absolutely core. 
until you and I embrace the fact that we're sinners, we're never going to be open to embracing the fact that God sent a Savior because you'll never think you really needed one. Until, until we embrace that fact, as, as long as you identify as a good person who now and then does bad things, who every once in a while screws up, as long as you can continue to identify as a mistaker, you're going to try harder. I've done this with God. You want to know how you're a mistaker? If every time you screw up, you go back to God and go, yeah, I screwed up. I'd like to confess that I screwed up, but I promise I'm going to do better because I really think I'm capable of, of doing better. Because I'm a good guy, really. I just screw up sometimes. We have to come to grips with the fact that I don't accidentally do bad things. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. Until you embrace the fact that you're a sinner, you're never going to really embrace a Savior. This is the story of Jesus' life. Look at who loved him. And looked at, look at who hated him. You know... All of you, I would imagine, have heard at one level or another the most famous parable Jesus told. In it is maybe the most overlooked line in, in the scriptures. It's in, in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, Luke's account. He did the research into these stories about Jesus. It wasn't there, but had went and, and, and wrote down all these first uh, eyewitness uh, accounts. And in Luke 15, it's my favorite chapter because it tells three straight stories about God's love for people that are far from him. And it concludes with this, what we know as the parable of the prodigal son. And you know the, you know the story, most of you, right? The, the, the younger son comes to the father and essentially says to his dad, look, I wish you were dead. I'd like to have my inheritance now. And the father for some reason, decides to give it to him. And, and it came at a cost, right? He, he'd have to sell some of the stuff that he had he would have to now live on less so that the son could get what he was supposed to get when he was dead. It was going to cost him financially. It was going to cost his reputation in the community. I mean, imagine the guys at the office. Dude, I, I saw you had to downsize your house. What happened? That eh, kid wishes I was dead. Right? You just, so you, your kid wants his stuff now. He doesn't want you to have it. He wants to take it and baby say he could wish you dead. Yeah, that, well, you know, sometimes these kids. It cost them relationally. Because not only does the son essentially wish the father is dead, he takes all his stuff, his inheritance, and he goes and he spends it on all of the things that the father is against. Wine, women, song, he blows it all. And, and there's this one moment in the story when this Jewish young man is in the worst place a Jewish young man could possibly be. He's in a pig pen feeding pigs. He has nothing left. He has hit rock bottom. This is where Jesus says, he goes, check this out. I love it so much. He goes, when he came to his senses. Don't you love that? When he came to his senses. I don't know if you had that come to your senses moment. I hope you will. It's almost a come to Jesus moment as described by Jesus himself. And what does he come to his senses about? When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's higher servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death? I'm going to set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. What did he come to his senses about? That he was a sinner. And he did what sinners do. He wasn't a good guy who made a bad decision. He had sinned. But actually, in his humanity, he doesn't understand his father yet. In his humanity, he concludes, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
He came to his senses about his sin, but he hasn't come to understand his father because he says that he's only, he, he, the only way he can be a son is to be worthy somehow of doing it. Thinking his sonship had something to do with something he could do, earn, try harder, do better. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. That is my favorite line in my favorite chapter. But while he was still a long way off, Despite what the son had done to the father, the father never gives up hope. The father sits out every day looking for him, scanning the hillside day after day, longing to see the silhouette of his son on the horizon. And he was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, and he throws his arms around him, and he kissed him. And you know what the son, you remember what the son said to the father when the father ran out, embarrassed himself in front of all the neighbors, ran, pulled his, you know, his pants up, ran out there. Here's what the kid said. You remember it. Luke wrote it down. Dad, look, I'm sorry. I really messed things up, and if you just give me another chance, I promise you I'm going to do better next time. It's just that, you know, Dad, my, my stupid friends, I mean, they were all doing it, and they got it all in my head, and they gave me some bad information. You know, Dad, junk in, junk out, right? I made a bad decision. And, and, and plus, you know, let's not forget some of your faults, Dad. You know, I'm a chip off the old block. I watched a lot of this in you. Maybe if you and mom had done a better job parenting, this wouldn't have happened. You know, you always favored the older brother of mine. How wasn't I supposed to rebel given the set of circumstances I grew up under? So dad, could we agree, let's just forget this and we'll move on. And trust me, I've learned my lesson. That's not what he said. That's what I'd say. But he came to his senses. Sometimes I still haven't. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father, I, I, I sinned. I'm a sinner. I've come to my senses. I, I'm going to need some saving. But the father, I love that line too, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He's lost and he's found. And so he was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. The father interrupts the kid before he even gets into his whole restoration plan about proving how he's going to be worthy to be a son. Sin simply forgiven. Cost absorbed by the father, relationship restored, party started. This is one long story. And, and my guess is that Jesus' disciple heard, heard um, John, heard Jesus say this on one, more than one occasion. And so John summed it up simply this way. He said, look, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you see... It's so important. The sooner you and I come to our senses and we embrace our sinfulness, the sooner we become candidates for the forgiveness of God. The sooner you and I embrace our sinfulness, the sooner, it doesn't mean we, we, we're happy about it, but the sooner we do, we, we come to understand we need and have a Savior. The sooner that, that we see our screw-ups as sins, the closer we become to knowing we've been forgiven, at least knowing what it feels like to be forgiven. Now, was the forgiveness free? Of course not. I mean, Jesus' parable, 
The son didn't have to bear the cost of the sin. It's remarkable. The father did. He lost his reputation and his stuff. But the same is true for you. By faith in Jesus, by trusting with your life, the father, through Jesus, by his death, God's justice poured out on him. On your behalf, the father has once again, you know, he's still bearing the price for his lost kids. This is when you become a Christian. When you come to your senses and you go, I got a problem. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I I sin because I'm a sinner. I I need a savior. And, And you realize you've been offered one. You transfer your confidence and your trust from yourself. I'm going to do better to Jesus, and you say, I'm placing all, my, all the weight of my trust and life in you and what you've done for me. There's nothing I can do. It's laughable to think there is. See, now you start to understand why the sinners loved them so much. They got it. They came to their senses, and, and, and so here's the question. We confess it every week. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, but have we come to our senses? Really? Do we really believe that? Because if we do, if we did, I can't help but think if we really understood the grace and forgiveness that was extended to us, if we really got it, I mean, shouldn't we, wouldn't we extend a little bit ourselves? Wouldn't we be a little bit better about expressing that same kind of grace and forgiveness to others? This is why in the brilliance, think about this one, this blew my mind this week. In the brilliance of the creed, forgiveness of sins comes immediately after the communion of saints. Think about that, right? Community is not possible without the forgiveness of sins. I mean, theologically, would it have made more sense to, to say suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified for our sins, dead and buried? But it doesn't. The creed says, I believe in the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins. There is no communion. There is no community of saints possible without the forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness of sins, no community. No forgiveness of sins, no community. Now, fast forward to the world that you and I live in today. We used to understand this as a people. My mom used to teach me this stuff. Now, we were never all that good at it. But at least we professed it as a value. We saw it as a virtue. But culturally, I don't know, something has happened. We don't see forgiveness as a value anymore. I'm not sure when it happened. I'm sure sociologists can pinpoint when the turn was. But sometime over the last decade or so, we've moved from Christ-like culture to what we're all referring to now as cancel culture. Where we once forgave, Now we forget. Uh, Think about it, right? Prior to the last decade, what did you cancel? You canceled subscriptions, newspapers, magazines, TV shows. Now we cancel people. And I'm telling you, does anybody else feel something just kind of spiritual about this? Like when you watch it happening, the power with which it comes down on people 
It's incredibly powerful, this movement. And, and, and truth be told, I'm going to wade into this gently because there's a guy with a microphone on his head and a stage under his feet and cameras pointing at me, sending out these words into the Twitter sphere. Nobody is likely to be more canceled than me right now. But when I speak of cancer culture, here's the first thing you have to understand. I'm not talking, uh, I'm not condemning whistleblowing that reveals corruption or illegality. That is good and right and just, and our God, as the creed has revealed earlier, is a God of justice. This is good and right. What I'm talking about is something that's that's far beyond that. What what I'm referring to is is this new ethos in our culture where these unwritten rules exist that retaliate against speech or behavior, right? Where things are prejudged as, as, well, that's offensive or that's controversial. Where even thoughts can be judged that way. In cancel culture, people are ostracized first, their reputations are smeared, their careers are ruined, even though, I mean, if you think about it, they've broken no law or engaged in any malicious behavior. Somehow, In this new culture, the totality of their humanity becomes equated to whatever words, acts, thoughts, or deeds that the coalescing mob decides to elevate and then judge. This is is why I think the movement is so powerful. It's because it presents a false gospel, a false good news. See, it disguises itself right? As, as good, right? But all evil practices tend to do that, right? It, they are like a forgery. It, it's a fake. It is what I would describe to you as a counterfeit gospel. They're trying to tell you this, and I'll explain who they is in a minute. They're trying to tell you this is good. It's not, it's not good. It's counterfeit. See, the cancel culture gospel, simply put, is this. It actually plays itself out in three parts. You're going to be, you're familiar with it. First, first thing cancel culture does is it it shames and humiliates, right? I mean, you could pick, I was going through the list. I mean, there's hundreds of people that this has hit already. First thing, we got to, we got to, somebody gets found out for something that they said or wrote or did or even thought, and it could have been a long time ago. Mostly then what happens is they are outed, and it's put online for shaming to begin. Whatever, whatever they did, flagrantly put out for everybody to see or judge with no thought given, right, to circumstance or context or privacy. They are torn down, denigrated, insulted, maligned, and marginalized. Step one, shame. Step two, step two is this. After we've done that, right, a demand is made for a confession and apology. He must apologize. She must apologize and confess for this. You've got to repent of what you said, of what you did, of what you thought. And the online mob, as we all know, it's relentless. Whether the person actually did anything worth confessing or not, you've got to confess. The the accusation is all that's necessary. And then finally, step three of the cancer culture is that, and this is the ironic part, regardless of whether they confess and apologize or not, a confession and apology is demanded. And what happens the minute it's given in cancel culture? You're canceled. But I apologized. Get out. 
The person is removed from public life, from public conversation. They lose their job, their reputation, their legitimacy. And if the mob has its way, their humanity. Here's why it's a counterfeit. Because the real gospel shares many of those same exact three parts. Shame, confession, and cancel, right? That's the gospel of, 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 the, counter, of the cancel culture. But this is, this is why it's so brilliant. It mirrors and mocks the gospel of Jesus. Remember the prodigal son. How did, how did John sum up the story that he heard Jesus say so often? You must he, didn't say you mu he didn't say you must confess your sins. He said, if. John did not write. You must confess your sins. And when you do, he is faithful and just to hold them eternally against you and cancel you, removing you eternally from his presence. That's not what John heard. He said, if, if you confess, it's your choice. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive your sins. <laughs> See, in cancel culture, confession leads to cancellation. In Christ-like culture, confession leads to forgiveness and conversion. In terms of shame, I mean, in cancel culture, right, the revelation of one's past sins, they lead to shame. But in Christ-like culture, well, as the scriptures say, anybody who believes in him will never be put to shame. Hebrews 12.2 actually says that Jesus bore for us on the cross our shame. He took our shame. We don't hand it out to people. Do you see how anti-kingdom this is? But it's nothing new. It's nothing new. In fact, Jesus actually took it on head on, head on. He got presented with cancel culture. Some of you know the story of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. There they are again, the professional do-gooders. They brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group. How embarrassing. And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Jesus, we've now publicly shamed her. We've revealed her sin to everybody in town. And now she must be canceled. Now, Jesus, what do you say? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin, there's that pesky word again that Jesus keeps trying to get us to understand that we all have an issue with. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground again. Those of you who have never said, done, written, or thought anything that might be worthy of cancellation, let you be the first to cancel. At this, those who heard began to walk away or go away one at a time. The older ones first, it's kind of funny wisdom comes with age, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Christians, right, please hear this. You have to hear this. This is what Jesus said to her. Then neither do I. Then neither do I. Now go and leave your life of sin. Then neither do I. The only person who had the right to condemn her, the only person she actually sinned against, the only person she actually owed a debt to did not condemn her. This, listen now, that is what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of the cancel culture mob, right in the midst of the mob. Now, here, 
I'm going to push your buttons a little bit, but that's okay. Here's the risk in, in talking to a church crowd about cancel culture. Because our values right now are under attack, and we are being threatened with cancellation. That is true. I get it. It's real. It's incrementally true. And so what we tend to do is when we think about this, we are, see ourselves in Jesus in the story we just read. We are the persecuted uh, woman, right? We are in the role of the woman. But way too often, can we just be honest, way too often hasn't the church played the role of the mob? Because that's not our role. It's not our call. You know why? Because we said we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do we? Do we? I'm not going to put any names on this because it's not about a person, and I'm not trying to, to cancel anybody. It's not about a political party either. But in the last, well, I'll just give you a couple things that are recent. In the last week or so, you know this horrible accident with Alec Baldwin and, and how he accidentally shot this poor young cinematographer on the set of this movie he was filming? By every single account, he accidentally shot her. Our hearts should break for the victims and our hearts should hurt for Alec Baldwin. Imagine carrying the weight around for the rest of your life of accidentally killing somebody. And look, I get Alec Baldwin is a controversial guy, and he says things that I don't like and I don't agree with. But in the aftermath of this event, there was a prominent intellectual politician who has made part of his appeal that he is a strong, converted Christian. Somebody who says he represents Jesus. He took to Twitter and encouraged people to begin to tweet against Baldwin. He wanted to get the mob fired up. It's time for him to hear what we have to say now. He's going to get his. Christians, we, we don't do mobs. We don't throw stones. We don't do unto others as they've done to us. That's not the gospel. There's a guy named Adam Smith. I just heard about this week. Several years ago, he took part in a protest against Chick-fil-A. Everybody knows Jesus' favorite chicken, right? Chick-fil-A? <laughs> Says it right there somewhere. And so he was protesting their stance on traditional marriage, a stance in line with the scriptural teachings uh, uh, on marriage in the Bible, a stance that I agree with. He posted a video of his interaction with the Chick-fil-A drive-thru person, who, by the way, the surfer, the surfer, if you see this video, is a rock star. She evidences Jesus like crazy. And he was strong in his admonishment of their corporate values, and he chided her for working for such a horrible company. Now, he went, and he thought he was doing something good, and so he posted this video online, and he went to bed. Well, when he woke up, this thing had gone viral. His, his employer, uh, the next day, began to receive death threats, bomb threats, and they fired him immediately for posting it. Here's what he said. As soon as I was fired, I lost the million dollars of stock that I had been awarded. I obviously stopped getting a salary. I couldn't make my mortgage payment at that point. My wife and I decided it was time to move out of the house and let it, and let it go. We had some 401k money for retirement that we were, we were going to have to use, and we started using that. A few months later, after he was fired, he landed another job, but lost it again as soon as the company became aware of the video. A third job was rescinded, despite Smith disclosing the video up front, and a fourth job was lost in a similar way. 
He, write, he said it was a year after the Chick-fil-A video and I had been canceled or shamed and I couldn't get a job. My money was running out. I tried to figure out how I'm going to come back here, he said. And he began to lose hope. Listen to this now. He goes, I looked at my insurance policy. It was, it was a million dollar life insurance policy. It had no exclusions for suicide. And I started contemplating that for a few weeks. Then even I started to figure out where and how I was going to do it. And I was going to try to make it look like an accident so that my children wouldn't have the shame, but at least they'd have the money, right? They'd have the money, and they'd have me, the mistake and the failure, out of their way. About two years after his viral video went viral, his family qualified for food stamps. Six months later, his first television appearance, uh, uh, talking about this, things started to turn around, he got a new job. Despite all he's been through, he feels like the experience changed him. Now listen to this. This is from a man that is not following Jesus, okay? He goes, I became much more sensitive towards being kind to others and realizing the impact it could have on the person receiving it, but also the person who's giving it. But he still feels cancel culture is unproductive. Quote, overall, I see the cancel culture, the public shaming is a negative symptom of where we're at and how we engage with each other. There are much kinder, calmer, more humane ways to get people to see what their actions are and how they're impacting others. It takes more time. It's more deliberate. It's much easier to just click and shame and cancel someone. I don't subscribe and support the shaming or the canceling of people at all. I think there are much, much more effective human ways to create change. As your pastor, I would add there are better divine ways. Guys, there is no communion of saints. There is no communion of saints without the forgiveness of sins. First, we believe it ourselves. We embrace that we are not mistakers. We are who Jesus said we are. We are not people who screw up sometimes, who need to try harder and do better. We, we are sinners that need a Savior. And when we get it, as the creed says, believe it. When we believe it, our relationship to Jesus completely changes because the Father is still waiting for sons and daughters to come home. He's still looking for your silhouette off in the distance. And when we get it, when we get it, we don't do mobs. We don't throw stones. When we understand how much we've been forgiven, we forgive. We have to reject the cultural gospel of cancel and become once again the countercultural church of Jesus, where the communion of saints is underpinned by the forgiveness of sins. Let's stand and close us off.